Welcome to Act and Unwind, an ongoing conversation on a free and virtuous society. I'm your host, Eric Cohn. Thank you for listening, and I want to ask that if you're listening to us on our website, that you navigate right now to the show notes for this episode, where you are going to find a link to subscribe directly to Act and Unwind at Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, or anywhere else where fine podcast products are available. And if you like this program, please leave us a five-star review at Apple Podcasts so you can help more people find this show. This week, I'm joined by Sam Gregg, Acton's Director of Research, and Dan Huger, Librarian and Research Associate here at Acton. Today, uh, we're going to talk about many of the narratives coming out of the horrific uh, mass shooting in Uvalde, Texas, and at the end, touch on Ilya Shapiro's resignation from Georgetown Law School. Uh, but I want to start first by thanking Sam for filling in for hosting for me for the last two weeks while I was gone. It was greatly appreciated, and those were great episodes. Thanks to everybody for uh, their work on those. I want to start with uh, with what happened in Uvalde, um, which I don't really need to recap for you, but I will hear somewhat briefly. Um, an 18-year-old shooter who presented, I think, numerous red flags uh, – Killed 19 children and two adults at Robb Elementary School in Uvalde, Texas. I I think I've actually largely seen the adoption finally of something that I've been in favor of for years. And it's, it's, again, sad to say that I've had to be in favor of this as a policy for years of not naming the individuals who perpetrate these acts, uh, which we will not do uh, on this program today. but yes, 19 children and two adults killed at Robb Elementary School. This also came shortly after a shooting in Buffalo, New York, where 10 people were shot and killed at a supermarket in Buffalo. Um, there was – again, there was a manifesto published from that person. Uh, there was not from the one in Uvalde, Texas, and there were clearly some – race lines uh, present in the Buffalo one, uh, not present in Uvalde, uh, incoherent as uh, the the choice of a supermarket in a black neighborhood in Buffalo was with the uh, uh, supposed theories of this individual in Buffalo. Uh, this is obviously a horrifying thing, and we find ourselves again witnessing this happen. I remember being in high school when Columbine happened. Uh, and we, we, we've seen too many of these incidents, uh, and they seem to, again, to me, have similar patterns where you have young men uh, who perpetrate these acts, and in most cases, there were signs that you could point to that said something was off, that something was wrong about these individuals. And what I would like to start with here on our program is... Sam, why – it's a hard question to answer, but I'm just going to throw it out there because I want to prompt some conversation on it. Uh, these things since 96 when Columbine – I believe it was 96 when Columbine happened um, – happen with – they're infrequent but also with too much regularity. Uh, why Why do we see this continual pattern of these individuals – uh, usually young men choosing vulnerable locations like schools where we find ourselves here grappling with um, just the horrific actions of this one individual and questions about what, if anything, can be done to prevent this from happening again in the future. It was obviously a terrible thing 
that happened. Of course, it also reflects uh, a general trend throughout the United States, as, you're, as you just mentioned, about these, these mass shootings by young men of particularly vulnerable groups, be it um, elderly black people, young children, etc. We should also put this in the context, I think, of the fact that there's been something like 200 mass shootings so far in 2022, according to the Washington Post this year. So what happened was terrible, and it also reflects a general trend towards gun violence that's across the United States right now, which also is part of an even bigger trend, which I, I we've talked about on this program before, which is the uptick in violent crime in general across the United States. So there's different ways in which you can slice this, right? I think there's clearly some issues about young men in the United States today who come from variety of ethnic backgrounds, Hispanic, black, white, etc., who resort to violence for all sorts of different reasons, psychological reasons. I mean, it's, trying to understand why people do this in the first place, I think, is, is, is almost a forlorn type of exercise in some respects. But it does reflect, I think, some broader trends among young men in the United States today, many of whom are not working, even though they could be working, many of whom seem less mature, shall we say, than their peers were 10, 20, 30, 40 years ago. So that's one slice of the problem. The second slice of the problem is just this general trend towards violence and crime, which has been going up uh, certainly since 2020. So that's another trend. And it's not just, and by that I just don't mean obviously killing, I mean things like violent theft, rape, etc., so this this general shift of so many parts of American society whereby violence is becoming normalized in some respects. And we all, I think, feel this. I know myself when I'm going to different places, I'm a lot more cautious than I was even a year ago when I go through particular neighborhoods when I'm walking down particular streets and and streets and neighborhoods that I never thought I would need to think about those sorts of things. So that's that's part of the broader picture of violence in in the United States that's going on now. The other thing I'd add, and this is more a historical point, and it's not meant to suggest that in any way that what's been going on is acceptable or somehow legitimate, It is a fact, I I think fair to say, that the United States, going all the way back before the founding, has just had a higher level of violence about it as a society moving from the colonial period through the founding in the 19th century, the 20th century. Law and order has not always been the norm in significant parts of the United States, Uh, There's a certain culture of violence that has ebbed and flowed at different points of American history. Maybe it's now exacerbated by some of the violent things you can watch on television or violent video games you can play. 
So there's a, there's a broader historical background to this. And as I said, I'm not saying this to try and uh, pretend that what's been happening in more recent years is somehow acceptable or good or that we don't need to be doing something about it. But it does seem that this is sort of part of, you might, might like to say, a little bit of a type of American culture which has been there for a very long period of time and I think which we struggle to deal with increasingly partly because it seems to me that it's becoming a little bit normalized, which is not something I think we should be happy about. Yeah, this is the point that I make constantly on this program about American exceptionalism and the way that it is misunderstood by a great number of people because they hear the word exceptional and they think in the terms of like, you know, oh, that's, you know, this steak we had was exceptional. You know, it, it just means really good. That, that is not what American exceptionalism actually right. is and actually means. It is just the notion that Americans are different. Right. You know, I've told the story at least a dozen times on this program. Right. About um, the going to the metric system in the United States and Canada in the 1970s and how Canada said yes and the United States said, no, we're not going to do it. Americans are just ornery and different. And that leads to more entrepreneurial risk-taking being one of those characteristics of American exceptionalism. It also leads to violence being one of those characteristics. We have more car deaths. We have more motorcycle deaths. We just have a different character in America. And I think it is very important to uh, highlight what Sam is saying there. That doesn't mean that any of this is acceptable or that we should just think like, well, these things are just going to kind of happen in America. Um, we should be intolerant of the existence of events like this while at the same time recognizing uh, in the same way that comparisons of you know a healthcare system in America for 330 some million people to a healthcare system for what is the population of Sweden that is constantly compared to um, is just not a comparison that one can make without uh, – a lot of question begging being involved in all of that. I want to note one other thing as well in what Sam said that um, – yeah, that number from the Washington Post um, is a good example of how statistics are only so valuable insofar as they go, right? We've also seen this with um, statistics about school shootings, that there have been something like you know 100 school shootings this year. And this is one of the things that frustrates me endlessly about this because we're implored by people usually who want to employ um, – implement some level of gun control in response to these incidents. Um, that we need to have serious conversations about all of this. And then it is filled with this frankly propagandistic statistic use. There have not been a 100 school shootings in the way that there was what happened in Uvalde. Right. Uh, things that get counted in there are, you know, two people met early on a Sunday morning um, and had an argument in a school parking lot and one shot the other. That's counted as a school shooting. That is an intellectual and statistical sleight of hand that is not helpful to this conversation. The same way, I think there is a little bit of that in that. Washington Post statistic, because the problem is defining what a mass shooting is, right? You know, so as I believe the definition they're operating on is any incident where four or more people are shot. Well, do you know what that encompasses? That encompasses, yes, incidents like Buffalo and incidents like Uvalde, but it also encompasses a lot of what is happening in the city of Chicago. I, I pulled up just some recent incidents. Uh, Chicago, right by the Bean, downtown in Millennium Park, one person was shot and killed. 
wouldn't qualify as a mass shooting. Um, there, however, one by the downtown Chicago uh, Mc- Avenue McDonald's, two people killed, seven injured. There was a shooting just the other day, Phil- Philadelphia South Street, three killed, 11 injured. There was one here in Grand Rapids just a couple days ago, one person killed, three people injured. And most of these incidents, having lived in Chicago for most of 15 years, uh, they are gang-related. And by and large, up until the last couple of years, they did not happen outside of about six neighborhoods. Again, this is not to say that that is all acceptable, but it is to say that they are characteristically different from the conversation that I think we should have about what happened in Uvalde, what has happened in Buffalo, what happened at Sandy Hook Elementary School. That merits a conversation, but we should be more intellectually honest about the nature and character of those incidents versus a lot of other stuff that gets lumped in with. One of the things to look at, and this is what I was what I was reminded of when you were talking about these sort of statistical anomalies, is we've had a very sort of dramatic conversation since uh, since the riots in Ferguson, Missouri, about uh, police shootings. This is something that there wasn't any metrics, substantial, consistent metrics to track until then, until the Washington Post started doing it. And it, and this is, you know, from other uh, press sort of reportings about these things, and they've compiled a database. And what it shows essentially is that between when they started compiling the database, which was, I think, in 2014, I think it starts at 2015 with the actual data forward is that it's about a thousand police shootings a year, every year, give or take somewhere around there. Now we've done a tremendous amount in terms of body cameras, in terms of all sorts of different sort of policy solutions. Um, and what it's telling us is that is that those policy s- solutions haven't produced the results that, that we would like to see. And a lot of people, when they're animated with tra- by tragedy, they want to see something done. There's a bias towards action. And what I think we're pointing to is that there's a real absence of understanding of just how widespread this phenomena is, what does a typical school shooting look like, what does progress look like? Because if we don't have those baselines in terms of numbers, we can't Uh, see what works and what does not work. One of the things we've seen along with this since since, uh, Columbine has been the idea of, you know, schools doing these active shooter drills, of the ideas of schools taking things seriously like bomb threats where they will, you know, shut down the school the next day. They will, you know, contact local police, have, you know, bomb sniffing dogs, all of this stuff. Um. Have those worked? Have those made a difference? And if not, why not? Um, One of the tragedies um, at Uvalde and and with many of these school shootings is these are are students at the schools themselves and often students with sort of previous red flags in terms of behavior, in terms of even threats, um, even threats of the nature of like school shootings. Um, 
And we have tensions in the American education system that is both free and compulsory and that we believe is sort of essential to democracy. And there is a bias towards inclusion versus exclusion. And there are very real ways in which that makes sense. There are also very real ways and that proves an obstacle to removing students who might be threats to fellow students. Um, and we see a routine, you know, we look back on these and we often see, oh, why didn't the school do this? All these signs were here. There are many times where these signs are here and this never materializes. And that's also something that if we're, if we're going to talk about this from a sort of behavioral mental health standpoint, that's also something we need to start accounting for um, before, we, before we, we transition to a sort of new policy regimen. I think that's what Dan just said is very important. It's also important that we make some necessary distinctions. So Eric rightly pointed out the sheer amount of gang violence that goes on in Chicago and the number of people who are killed on a weekly basis every weekend in Chicago. Now, the reason I'm saying that is because it seems to me that there's some different things going on there compared to what happens in a, in a school shooting. Involve guns, yes. Violence, yes. Mostly males, yes. But there's clearly something different, some different dynamic happening in those situations, which means that sort of uniform rules imposed from the top down are not always the most effective in dealing with things that look the same on the surface because they are in terms of the physical act, but what's driving them is often quite different sociologically speaking. Dan is right that there is in the wake of incidents like this, especially 19 dead children. I mean, it is horrifying and heartbreaking. You are right that there is a bias towards action, that we should do something. And I, in a sense, agree with that. I think there are things that merit conversations, um, at least if we can get an acknowledgement from the beginning that uh, whatever the desired public policy regime would be from the left or the right or really from any individual is not going to be a lock to make sure these things never happen again. We want to reduce the possibility that they occur and we want to reduce the possibility or at least increase the possibility of intervening with the individuals who perpetrate these acts before they perpetrate these acts. But I think one of the things that stunts our conversation on this is the left, and I think increasingly the right as well, is losing the vocabulary, the moral imagination to discuss why things like this happen in the first place, that there is a reticence to call it evil, that there is this belief on the left and I think increasingly on the right that public policy can fix broken souls. Public policy cannot do that. It cannot accomplish that. It leans into this notion of the perfectibility of man, that if we just turn all the switches, all the dials to the right settings and flip all the right switches, 
we will achieve utopia on this plane of existence. This is one of the reasons why I think the Acton Institute's voice is so important is to, yes, understand, um, you know, as we focus on economics, but also public policy implications, but with an understanding of virtue and religious faith, that there are some things that uh, a lot of people talking about it lack the vocabulary to talk about it, I think, in an appropriate way. Now, this isn't to say that we should, um, you know, discard conversations about should we raise the age for buying a rifle. I think, you know, I'll offer my opinions on some of these things. I think we should harmonize a lot of the stuff that is split up between the ages of, uh, you know, 16, 17, 18, 21, and 25. Um, We lack a clear definition of majority in this country. You're allowed to vote at 18. You can buy a handgun at 18. You can't drink until you're 21. You can drive a car at 16. Um, A lot of this stuff does not make sense. It's always weird because you have to draw a line somewhere. The notion that you're, you know, incapable of driving a car at uh, 15 years old and 364 days, but one more day and you're perfectly qualified. But we should probably more coherently draw that line. I think there is a a meritorious argument for uh, well-written red flag laws, although I think it's worth pointing out that the uh, there was one in New York and nobody really pointed to the Buffalo shooter. No one acted on it, at least. Um, People may have been able to pick up the red flags. But one of the things for these laws to work is that people actually have to use them. Going back to Chicago, like Sam mentioned, one of the reasons that there's a lot of guns on the streets is because it is policy of U.S. attorneys and of local uh, Cook County state's attorneys. They don't prosecute straw gun purchases. One person purchasing a gun and then handing it off to another person. Um, I tend to think that that would probably make a good amount of difference if we took those kinds of crimes more seriously. But they just aren't enough... They don't draw enough glory for the prosecutor in order to prosecute, you know, some 60-year-old woman who buys a handgun in Indiana and hands it off to someone that ends up in Chicago. Uh, We should, before we think about adding more laws to the books, at least start utilizing the ones that already exist. But again, recognizing in the background that, you know, there are no, pardon the expression, silver bullets in this conversation. And there is a failure to me of civilization, both as a noun and as a verb in a lot of these stories, especially what you see in the gang violence in Chicago. But I think applying to these shooters as well, that civilization is an activity. Civilizing people is an activity. And it it just strikes me that we're not doing as good of a job of that in this country today as we used to. You mentioned the word evil. And that's a word we don't often hear too much, except in terms of things like social evil or the evils of society, etc. Well, one of the things that faiths like uh, Judaism, faiths like Christianity say a great deal about, of course, is this very idea of evil in itself. Now, the classic definition of evil, as Thomas Aquinas tells us, is evil is the absence of good. But it does seem to me that in the midst of discussing these problems, we hear a lot of talk about psychology, sociology, economics, politics, public policy, all of which is valid, all of which is interesting, all of which has a contribution to make. But it seems to me we shy away 
in many cases, and this includes many people of religious faith, from using the word evil to say that this act or this choice is evil under all circumstances, no matter what, the mitigating factors, etc. And perhaps that's part of the problem. We've lost the capacity to speak about good and evil in this deeper, more profound, at least for people of faith, a type of theological way, because I think that would at least give us some insight to the reality of what's often occurring in many of these cases, because these people are making a free choice to do something that they know, that they know is evil in itself, that's wrong in itself, it's an irredeemable act. But even in many churches and synagogues today, you don't hear pastors, priests, rabbis, imams invoking this type of vocabulary because I, and I, one of the reasons I think that is the case is because it challenges the soft relativism that I think has permeated a great deal of Western conversation about these types of questions and this deeper moral structure that is part of what we're talking about here or the absence of the ability to talk about the nature of what is going on as something that's evil is in a way impeding us from understanding the full reality of what's happening in many of these cases. There is, I think, behind a lot of a lot of these instances, there's there's a real evil um, and there's a real alienation, loneliness, and despair, which is the grounds in which that sort of evil and nihilism can grow. That creates people that are extremely difficult to deal with. They're extremely difficult to deal with in their family contexts. They're extremely difficult to deal with in their school contexts and professional contexts and this sort of thing. Um, and so you see cascading levels of failure here because not everyone is equipped to deal with that sort of despair, that sort of nihilism, that sort of antisocial behavior. Um, and what Sam is talking about, what, what recognizing that does is it realizes, A, that um, this is something that maybe we should be very deeply uncomfortable with putting in a classroom with other students. Now, this isn't to mean that any of these folks are irredeemable. This isn't, man, I mean, this is, this, is part, this is sort of all of our responsibility. But we have to maintain sort of minimum thresholds of safety in school situations most certainly, but in society at large as well. So we need a way to reach these folks with compassion when there have been sort of breakdowns all along the line. And we also need to look at those breakdowns too. I mean, we need to interrogate what is happening to the family in society, what is happening in churches and communities. Because for this to get this bad with any individual represents a cascade of failures in 
family and community. And again, many of these people are very difficult and challenging to deal with. And not everybody is equipped. So how, I mean, well, this is what I reflect on myself thinking about this is, okay, what can I do in a concrete way to serve folks in communities who may be deeply alienated like this? What can I do to extend an appropriate level of compassion, of solidarity, of some way to bring these folks who are lost back into contact with reality and with humanity, with their neighbors and with themselves. And that is something that is, is, is very tricky to do and requires a sort of patience and compassion that um, is very hard to give. Before we move on to the biggest institutional failure in what happened in Uvalde. One note on that is you know, Sam, <clears throat> Sam's point about uh, you know, the failure to call things evil. Um, and I also think you know, his point about the uh, soft relativism, I think in a modern secularist society, uh, saying that an individual like this is evil as a way of explaining what happened strikes a lot of people as just incredibly unsatisfying of an explanation. Um, I, I think of it, I always think of this phenomenon to me with regard to the way that the Kennedy assassination produced so many conspiracy theories. And I think one of the reasons why that happened is because if you think of it in terms of a scale, imagine a scale in your mind, and on one side of it, you put John F. Kennedy, um, set aside your you know, political opinions about John Kennedy, but an incredibly consequential individual, if only by virtue of the fact that he was you know, one of the 40-something presidents of the United States that we've ever had, um, and the United States at the time, post-World War II, United States, clearly being the leader of the free world. And on the other side, you have Lee Harvey Oswald who is just this absolutely inconsequential 22-year-old who even the Soviet Union didn't want. And you look at that and it doesn't seem to balance. The idea that someone that inconsequential could take the life of someone that consequential. So we need to feel this moral need to put our fingers on that scale and add something to it. It must have been bigger than this. It had to be bigger than this. And sometimes that's just not true. It's just one seemingly inconsequential individual c commits a very consequential act and there isn't more to it than that and it's understandable to me why we would have a hard time accepting it but just because we have a hard time accepting it doesn't mean that that's not the answer our inability to accept the answer if it's true is not a problem with the answer it is a problem with ourselves i i want to move now to um the part of this story that absolutely yeah. This this incident is so absolutely terrible that it in and of itself is almost too much to comprehend. But when you read the timeline of what the police in Uvalde, Texas did not do, I, in in a way I'm I'm at least as outraged by that as I am by the incident itself and it speaks to me of just this sense that something in America is just 
broken. That it we are not as you go back to that American exceptionalism point I was making earlier, that you would look for the heroes. You know, it, it that is the American narrative, right? That like you know it. Awful moments produce incredible heroes. You know, it's it's June sixth today, which is the anniversary of the of the D Day invasion. Just incredible acts of heroism committed by everyday people, and we look at what this institution, the Uvalde Police Department, was entrusted to do, and for forty minutes they did nothing. And I I kept dwelling on the quote from uh, C.S. Lewis. Courage is not simply one of the virtues, but the form of every virtue at its testing point. And you see the failure of courage there in a way that, you know, we, we've had lots of conversations about police and policing in the last few years. Most of it spurred by incidents like what happened um, uh, starting in, in Ferguson with that uh, police shooting, um, but numerous police killings of uh, civilians and that having a hit on the reputation i think this almost i think this does more damage in people's minds to how they view policing than any one of those incidents because it is you can at least look at those incidents and and try to imagine yourself in those circumstances and i think understand that it's a very hard decision for that officer to make this seems incomprehensible to me that they could stand by for 40 minutes and do absolutely nothing. How do we get to this kind of an institutional failure of the people whose job we're constantly told is to put themselves in harm's way? Well, there are many, many, many things that can be said about this, right? Because it reflects some people would argue, uh, you mentioned C.S. Lewis, the sort of problem of what he described as men without chests, this, and by that he's really talking about uh, people who, who basically lack because they haven't been formed the virtues that one of what you just mentioned, which is courage, but also things like prudence, temperance, etc. All the classic virtues that we get from, we hear about from the Greeks, complemented by the theological virtues of faith, hope, and love that comes to us from Christianity. And Sam, I think that just drives home the, the relevance of that C.S. Lewis quote that I read, right? right. You know, if, it's, exactly. if courage is all of those virtues at its testing point, if you lack all or many of those virtues, there's nothing to test. Right. No, this is exactly right. And we're not even accustomed to talking about these things as part of what should be forming people in their vocation, whether it's <clears throat> a teacher, as we as uh, we saw these teachers <laughs> in this terrible incident, literally lay down their lives for their students, and then we have the police officers whose job, as you said, Eric, is part of is is the knowing that there will be times and places where they will have to put their lives on the line. That they're not willing to do that then they shouldn't be entering these professions in the first place. So it is incomprehensible to me that this did not transpire the way that it should have transpired. Yes, there are protocols in place for these types of situations, but it's also very clear that there was a course of action 
to be followed here. Very clearly, that was not followed. And it's not a question of policy. It's not a question of protocols. It's not a question of any of those things. This is a basic failure of virtue, of choosing to do the hard but difficult thing and what makes it even worse is that many of these people have signed up to do that, that those precise difficult things when in those what we always hope will be rare occasions where they're called upon to do so. So you mentioned civilization before. We talked about how evil corrodes that, how this soft relativism, relativism is corroding it. But the other crisis of civilization and civilized behavior is the washing out the depletion of these virtues that the Greeks spoke about, that the Romans spoke about, that Christianity and Judaism refined and put into a wider context, the fact that those have eroded in particular institutions tells us uh, how low we've fallen on the civilizational stakes. And I don't even know how you would begin to have a proper conversation about some of these things with some of the people that are charged with undertaking these responsibilities because even the language of the virtues is alien to so many people. We hear a lot of talk today about values, right? I've got values, you've got values, everyone's got values. But values don't tell us very much because values are what we happen to choose to think is important. Virtues, by definition are not something that are up for discussion, right? They are permanent things about the human person that human persons are capable of realizing. And when we're unable to talk about the moral life in terms of virtues like that, then we run into these types of problems of being able to, even able to speak coherently about the nature of the failure that we saw happen in this incident. And there's a very fundamental failure. I think Sam got at it with the language of responsibility. I think too often now we tend to think, you know, if things aren't our fault, they're not our responsibility. And that is poison to a civilization um, because responsibility is not about praise or blame. It's about recognizing our own ability to respond in our communities, in our contexts, and to act out of love from that place. And if you come at it with an attitude of cowardice, which is what the, what the opposite of this is, you're not going to have a civilization. Yeah, I think the, you, we can point to a failure of training of the police, which I think is a a valid conversation to have. Are we effectively training police officers to be ready for the potential of putting their lives on the line when they may be called to do so? Um, we can also look to that vis-a-vis -vis the way that the military trains people. Like, you know, the idea of um, putting your life on the line for a big idea or a concept is a hard thing to get through to people, but putting your life on the line for the person standing next to you is the kind of thing that you can train people to do. And maybe we, maybe we do have a public policy failure there. We have a public policy failure to 
accurately and sufficiently prepare police officers for the work that they are going to do. I I think that is entirely a, a possibility and something that should be more closely examined. I think Again, going back to the other kinds of incidents, George Floyd, uh, Michael Brown and Ferguson, um, I I think it is also entirely arguable that we insufficiently prepared those officers to be ready to handle those kinds of situations as well. Maybe we do need to think long and hard about the way that we're preparing police officers uh, to to discard the um, just ludicrous idea that we should just junk policing altogether. Um, but to actually have a meaningful uh, conversation about how we would make changes to the way that we prepare those people to do their jobs. To piggyback off something else that Sam said, too, um, he's talking about the replacement of virtues with values. And I see an even more troubling trend, which is that we're not even replacing them with values. In many cases, we're replacing them with these notions that are at best value neutral. So I'll give you two examples. Um, from the two most recent previous presidents of the United States. Uh, Donald Trump talked, you know, one of the defenses of him was he fights, right? He fights. Um, He wins. Winning and fighting are value-neutral concepts. You know, if World War II turned out differently, Germany and the Axis powers would have won. That is a statement, that would be an accurate statement about what historically transpired. But it contains absolutely no either value or virtue judgment in the actual outcome there. Go back to President Obama. And this is something that a lot of politicians are guilty of. Um, making endless calls for unity. Unity is also a value-neutral concept. As Jonah Goldberg always likes to point out when this comes up, do you know what is – you know, yeah, we could point to SEAL Team 6, which was Barack Obama's example. They were unified. And if only we'd all as a country be as unified as them. As Jonah Goldberg points out, you know what else is unified? Rape gangs. Again, we're taking the value and even, you know, virtue judgment out, but also value judgment out. It, I'd almost be thankful for some value judgment being injected into this. But we're not getting that really at all. And it's it, it almost... It reminds me of a point Kevin Williamson made about the, you know, one of the greatest sins in our politics today is idolatry, is that we hold up these things to be idols that are not, that are not what we should be properly reverential of. And as a result, I think we get the ability to slip in these value-neutral concepts um, in placement of actual values and that in replacement of actual virtues. Let's move to out of this um, incredibly sad and depressing topic for to hit on one more thing uh, this morning. And we talked about this previously on the program. Ilya Shapiro, um, recently of the Cato Institute, uh, had accepted a new position at Georgetown Law School. Uh, he was immediately placed under an investigation there for tweets that he had sent out discussing the nomination of Katanji Brown Jackson to the Supreme Court, where he made a poorly phrased um, but entirely uh, debatable argument about whether or not she was the most qualified possible person, the best possible person who could be put up for that position because of how poorly phrased it was, which, of course, he deleted the tweets and he apologized for it was under this long-term um, investigation, again, of a couple of tweets 
which I think speaks uh, very poorly of the whole process and the nature of Georgetown Law School that it took uh, months, seemingly, um, for them to investigate tweets. Uh, Ilya Shapiro sub- uh, was reinstated uh, the end of the investigation, and he was reinstated to his position, and this morning tendered his resignation from Georgetown Law School, citing a hostile work environment, uh, pointing out essentially in his belief that Georgetown was setting him up for uh, failure and for um, a the same kind of crucible over every possible thing that he would say, things that should be absolutely up for debate, as you know, before we started this conversation, as Sam pointed out, if he questions affirmative action, is he going to be under investigation for having said something in the view of Georgetown law that is racist? Uh, <laughs> odds, uh, you know, shake the magic eight ball here. All signs point to yes. So uh, the question I will throw out there is um, – Will this resignation have any meaningful impact on institutions like Georgetown Law School? Will they think at all about trying in their, when trying to attract talent to be on the faculty there? If you know one incident and that person is uh, you know put through a Kafka esque process of their uh, every thought being investigated, um, are they going to lose out on talent, or is this just? Universities like this are so far gone that um, there's just no way this could make a difference in any meaningful way. Well, there's a number of things that we can say about this. In the first instance, it's very clear that what has happened in this case is that they have basically created a circumstance where, by they I mean Georgetown, has created a circumstance whereby anyone who says things, anyone who's a faculty member, etc., who says things that are of a, let's call it centre-right disposition, is going to be harassed, attacked, etc., on the grounds that to hold these positions is de facto evidence that you are, you hate, you're a hater, you dislike particular groups, you're anti-women, you're uh, anti whatever it happens to be. So that's that's the circumstance. At the same time, as Shapiro points out in his article, if you go through lots of Georgetown professors' tweets, you find all sorts of outrageous things said that uh, are coming from a broadly centre-left position, in some cases from a hard-left position, at which the university doesn't blink an eye. So I think this tells us that some places like Georgetown, that if you are of a centre-right disposition, you have to be very careful what you say. You have to be very careful if you're even thinking about applying to work at some of these institutions, what you say in public about anything, really. Because the way that this type of ideology works is that the moment you stray outside broad centre-left orthodoxies about a given subject, you are de facto a racist, you are de facto a hater, you are de facto whatever it happens to be. And that's, a, that's an insidious position to be in. You know, if, if you're a faculty member who doesn't think that way, or if you're a, even a student who doesn't think that way. It's also indicative of the degree to which university deans and administrators, even ones who you think might have a more 
uh, traditional approach to free speech issues have basically been completely cowed by mobs of students who in many cases are aided and abetted by professors and other people who are working at the university itself. So Georgetown seems set to continue to decline into, rather than being a university that's interested in veritas, truth, a university that's going to become more and more of a type of echo chamber for broadly left-wing positions, which means to my mind that it's essentially portrayed the very purpose of what a university is about, which is not ideological indoctrination, whether it's from the right or from the left. It's the pursuit of truth, and one of the ways that you pursue truth is that you have open and frank discussion conducted with politeness of difficult questions like, is affirmative action constitutional? Is it moral? Is it something that actually amounts to a type of legal discrimination on the part of the state in favour of particular ethnic, religious, whatever groups? That's just one example. So this tells me that this is a very good example of how so many universities are basically blocking themselves off from reasoned debate about things that need to be and deserve to be reasonably debated and to which someone who comes in and says something like, I think affirmative action is wrong for the following moral, legal, constitutional, except political reasons, such people apparently are just no, no longer welcome in some of these environments, which is the triumph of ideology over the, over the pursuit of truth. There's also the the other perspective in this, if you are a right-of-center academic, do you take a position at a place like Georgetown when it's offered? Ilya Shapiro did and has found that to continue there after being essentially exonerated would amount to a hostile work environment. So now what does this mean in the future for right-of-center academics who in some way their politics has a sort of relevance to their discipline, as Ilya Shapiro's did with constitutional law? Do they go to other institutions, to more niche academic institutions? Do they, you know, in fact, practice law rather than teach law? How do people begin to think through um, a world that is incredibly crowded with a lot of people and a lot of people eager? If you have one of these jobs, you know, Georgetown will not have a, a problem hiring another professor of an exceptional caliber because there is a crisis all over higher education. And Georgetown is still a prestigious law school, um, maybe in the beginning of decline, but it still has cachet. And there are still many people whose political sensibilities Georgetown would be uh, much less concerned with who are willing and eager to step up and teach there. Um, so you're not going to – it'll be interesting to see where, where the future of folks who don't – in an oversaturated education market, where do folks who are out of the mainstream uh, in terms of American e academia, in their politics, in their economics, 
in their religious affiliation. What do they end up doing in the future? Do they end up um, being more quiet? Uh, Eric Posner uh, uh, did a great interview once, and he's like, I, you know, he thinks it's just a mistake for academics to be on Twitter because of this. That so one path forward is to, unless it is narrowly relevant to your discipline and unless it's published in an academic paper, do not talk about it. Um, do your job, teach your students, publish your research, but you're not going to have this sort of public presence. Or is it, um, you know, it is not worth that abdication of a public presence. And so I'm going to go into other avenues of the private sector, my, maybe some sort of rival inst academic institution, emerging academic institutions. It'll be interesting to see because I Have think you heard the saying, Dan, by I think I believe it's attributed and I'm saying attributed here to Harvey Mansfield when he said something along the lines of, well, my my students aren't going into the academy because their positions mean that they're not going to be accepted. They'll never get tenure etc cetera, etc cetera. instead they're going into politics and they're running the government <laughs> so so I, I think I mean that of course is a whether that actually happened and to the to, whether that had any effect is a different question altogether but it does tell you I think that much let's call it center-right intellectual talent is going to be less and less interested in going into let's call it mainstream, universities. But it's going to present some dilemmas for particular types of universities as well, right? Because the big places like Georgetown, elite institutions like Georgetown, Harvard, Yale, etc., they're going to be fine. The people are still going to want to go there to get the credentials. There are indeed good people still teaching in many of these institutions as well, right? But I think it's the bigger challenge is going to be for these sort of mid to low level universities because uh, they need to show that they're somehow different. There's something they can offer that uh, the big universities can't. And maybe one of the things they might like to offer is intellectual and political, quote, you know, to use the buzzword today, diversity. But if they rule that out as a matter of course and try to ape the behavior of some of the elite universities, I think it's going to contribute to, to their big problem right now, which is more and more people deciding that it's just not worth going to these institutions, either for financial reasons or because they're realizing, I don't need to do that if I want to have a successful career in any, any number of walks of life in the future. Yeah, that challenge that you noted for uh, is also a market opportunity for those mid-tier universities Correct. to offer something qualitatively different than what those elite institutions are offering. Um, I'm, I'm going to continue a theme on this show today, although clearly acknowledging that the consequences <clears throat> of the failure here are far less serious than the consequences of the failure in the previous conversation we were having. <laughs> Barry Weiss wrote a really great piece for commentary a couple issues ago, uh, which was dedicated to the issue of what basically what do we do about wokeness? And her piece was, um, you know, cowardice got us here and courage will get us out. Uh, we need people more like Ilya Shapiro at the beginning of this than Ilya Shapiro at the end of this. And while I'm going to say I can entirely understand Ilya Shapiro's decision to resign from this position. We need people with the courage to stick it out there 
and fight the good fight there because otherwise, ostensibly, you know, these elite schools, we're seeding them. Um, we started seeding them decades ago. Uh, when the you know concept would have been more along the lines of you know the the monasteries of the world that exist like Grove City and Hillsdale that you know it's like well we'll just build our own institutions. Um, this was definitely a a program track of the right in the '90s, which is well you know the left owns Hollywood and media and all of that in the university, so let's just start building our own. And there's value there, but I am in agreement with the people who have said that it would probably be better to have. You know, five more center right people on the faculty of Harvard University than five new schools like Hillsdale. Because while I applaud the efforts of the University of Austin and people who are trying to do what we just pointed out, take up that market opportunity, take advantage of the failures of these lead institutions. The problem is for just the average person out there who lives in, you know, outside of Omaha, Nebraska, if you're giving them the choice, holding most other things equal, of their child going to the University of Austin or to Harvard, they're going to want their kid to go to Harvard for all the obvious reasons that you would want your child to go to Harvard because that opens doors that other places do not because there's a prestige associated with it that other places do not have. I think it's important that we fight for those institutions, which is not to say that we shouldn't do the work of building our own, right? You know, what, what is, where does Dartmouth come from, right? It comes from a belief at a period of time longer, much longer ago that Harvard was failing at its job. So they were going to create other institutions that have grown to become elite institutions today. But that takes a long time and a lot of work. And I don't think that means that we should surrender the fight for these institutions in our current time. So I think we do need people with the courage to accept those positions if they are offered. We need people, and we should call on the other side here as well, the people who run these institutions, the courage to offer positions like that to prominent people on the right um, and to make the arguments like the um, uh, President Zimmer at the University of Chicago did saying we're dedicated to I, you know, a set of values and we're going to uphold those values and we are not going to violate those values because some people are very angry. That was a courageous act by him. And we need more people willing to be courageous on all sides of this if this is going to get better. Let's call it a wrap there for today. Thank you again for listening to Acton Unwind. If you're listening to this podcast on our website, Again, please look in the show notes for where you're going to find a link to where you can subscribe directly to Act and Unwind, or you can just search Act and Unwind on your favorite podcast app. Also, again, please rate and review us on Apple Podcasts, five-star reviews only, so as to help more people find this program. Thanks to Sam. Thanks to Dan. For the Acton Institute, this is Eric Cohn. We'll see you next week. Hold up. 